to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Berg, and I do machine learning and data engineering at Databricks. And I'm joined by my newly appointed software engineering co-host. Uh, ben Wilson. I integrate with tools like what our guest company builds at Databricks. Nice. Yeah, so great segue. Um, today we have Sylvain Massage. Uh, he got his PhD in machine learning and scientific computing, and since then he's taken a variety of software engineering engineering roles. And honestly, there's a few too many to recount, so I won't. Um, but most recently, he's been focusing on data visualization and and software engineering at Hugging Face. So, Sylvan, I was going through your website uh, for a little bit too long last night, looking at all the cool things you put together. And I was wondering why you build so many things, so many tools. And to give a little bit of context for the listeners who might not have seen the website yet, um, he has a little widget that solves the equations for the mechanical design of a spring. He also has stuff for the Graham algorithm that uh, looks to find the boundary of the smallest convex polygon that encloses all points of a set. So is this just for fun? Is it to learn? Why do you do all this? For the spring, it was uh, my brother who is a mechanical engineer and he needed um, to design a spring. So he asked me if I could help. And I did it uh, in some days at Christmas uh, vacation. So it was uh, very, very fun, but clearly not what I do every day. And I wanted to to, to work with free GS. So it was very interesting. Got it. So you did it because you're a kind person and you wanted to help out fellow engineers? I was very curious uh, about if I could do it or not. Yeah, so from my my perspective, I absolutely love learning by doing. And is that your experience? Because you also have a very fancy PhD and have held a variety of professional positions. So how do you approach learning new topics? Yes, by the way, I... I have a special work experience because I did a lot of different things. I lived in France, in Bolivia. I did a special data engineering. I was also working on networks, on web development, data visualization, data engineering. So I like very much changing uh, topics and and trying and learning things, obviously, uh, by doing them. So, yes, I, I, I'm always very curious, and I like to have challenges and trying to to, to prove myself I'm able to do it. I hear that a lot from colleagues that also are like this, um, where it's not so much building something to solve a problem when you're not at at work it is part of that but it's more that process of saying like i want to feel incompetent again like i want to see like how much i don't know and then figure that out and everybody that i've known that does that you start seeing it bleed into their work where they can figure things out faster than they could have years before, uh, like new problems. Do you feel like it's changed the way that you approach engineering in general because you do a lot of that stuff? Yes, that's, that's true. It's, I've always been uh, somewhat incompetent in my job. And uh, I even was an executive director for a public office in Bolivia with a name domains uh, for the country. And I, won, I was not good at that, and it was like administrative uh, work, And but I learned a lot. I also like uh, worked, talked for Bolivia at uh, Geneva, uh, United Nations. I don't like being a diplomatic, uh, yeah, but uh, it was something I learned too. And, Yes, I, I like to be like in danger and trying to, to overcome this. So 
yes, it's something I like uh, very much. And I think it's the best way to learn. I like very much to learn new things. But uh, yes, the issue is that I don't really take the time to become very good at one thing. So I don't know. I never really took the time to, to, to focus on one thing. So maybe I'm missing other experiences. I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy because I'm the same way. Uh, jack of, of many trades, but uh, yes. master of none. Um, but I've noticed that on teams, when you have people like that, that are very curious and want to learn new things and try out different approaches, having them balance with the super deep people uh, with respect to you know, tackling issues like somebody, I don't know if it's like that at, at, at your team, but we're kind of structured that way. We have a couple of people on, on, you know, a given team, they're sort of generalist software engineers and they can figure out like how to design these things. And, you know, the, the big picture, they understand how integrations work with other tools at the company and, and how a user might use something, but that person is not necessarily the best software developer, like uh, executing code and getting it, it shipped. But then you have these other people that are amazing at just churning out perfect production code because they've gone so deep into this one area. Do, Do you find that stuff like that at places that you've been before that mix teams like that work pretty well? Yes. Currently we, we are a team of five, I think. And we have some colleagues that are Python uh, geniuses and that can I really can follow and uh, they are other level and I really do very basic uh, Python code but clearly I'm uh, contributing to different levels to JavaScript uh, in the front end uh, uh, product that have visualization. Uh, Python backend, the network, uh, Kubernetes, and so a lot of different things. I'm not good at none, but uh, I am able to to contribute to all the stack. And uh, on the other side, for example, people who work on the dataset library, which is very specific, they are contributing and producing a lot of code uh, every day. On but clearly uh, more focused on, on, uh, on this topic. So I think it works very well. Uh, we, have, we are able to fix issues uh, very quickly. Uh, if it's basic, we can, any member can uh, uh, take the issue. And if it's a bit harder, we have always uh, somebody more specialist uh, able to, to, to deep go deeper so yes it works well but we are also a small team so we can't uh, uh, escalate with uh, um, every level of uh, expertise so uh, every everybody in the team is asked to to, to go outside of uh, their comfort zones but we like very much working with small teams. It's very efficient for what we put. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Sort of the smaller the team, the more tactical you can be. And often the general skill sets serve small teams well because you do have to wear many hats. If you don't have 100 people, you don't have your designated XGBoost engineer, your dedicated JavaScript, whatever, whatever the developers are. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, it's really interesting to hear that. How would you describe the culture beyond generalist of your team? Because I've been joining some of Ben's uh, MLflow OSS standups and sort of learning more about, and I work with external teams every day, multiple times a day. So what are some of the core tenets of culture of your team that you find uh, lead to success? I think our team uh, is working as the same as uh, you being, being face uh, in general. 
which we have uh, some basic principles uh, to work uh, asynchronously. So really, we in our team we do one one hour uh, meeting every two weeks, and but we didn't do it uh, next times last time. So it's like uh, one month uh, without a meeting uh, this month, and it works very well. We it's useful to to speak. Uh, from time to time uh, to to set up uh, a bit the strategy or the tactic uh, for the next uh, weeks, but we don't uh, have uh, this kind of bureaucratic um, scrum uh, 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 protocol. We really don't don't do that. So it's uh, basically a Slack, GitHub issues, and that's it. And um, the other thing is really we are free to work on uh, what we what we want or we have some priorities but really we have there is no micromanagement there is even no management i would say so we we are autonomous and uh, we we see all every member of the team can contribute uh, better so there are, there are a lot of daily uh, messages and Slack to to see how we, everyone can uh, help uh, the other one. But um, every member of the team uh, feels uh, responsible for the product, and uh, and so it works very well. And also, one thing uh, I didn't mention is that everybody is uh, working remotely, so. We and we don't. We are not uh, all in the same um, uh, time zone. So uh, this kind of uh, setup uh, works very well for our team. For example, uh, the last two months, I have been working from Bolivia with uh, six uh, hours. Of difference with uh, France uh, time zone and it worked the same. I, I don't. I, there was there were no no differences, so it's very robust. I think to a lot of our listeners who maybe work at companies that don't subscribe to that philosophy, mm-hmm. they're probably like, "Yeah, the software is probably not that good, or the product's not that good." Uh, allow me to assuage. Uh, those those doubts um, throughout the last on and off pretty much like the last 10 months I've been from the initial feature implementation to follow up PRs and feature requests that we've added which we're still continuing to do I've probably interfaced with APIs that you've had your hand in building uh, many times uh, dozens uh, per week whenever we're working on a feature. I've never been anything but delighted with particularly the data sets APIs and how Hugging Face Hub works. It's cleverly designed. It's implemented properly where you don't have, as a user, you don't have to worry about like, oh, how do I fetch from this particular S3 bucket and get authentication keys and do all of this stuff to find this particular reference by some, you know, unique ID. The APIs are very simple. You just get this tag reference. It fetches all of the required data, brings it to your local machine, and now you're operating off of a local cache. So the way that you've described how your team works and this 100% remote, distributed, not exactly following agile methodology with Scrum, it's it's working for, for your team. Do you think that the entry bar for a team like that is potentially age gated or experience gated? Could you take, could you start a new team with, with five members that have less than a year experience? And do you think this would, that would work? Or do you need somebody who's, senior has been doing this for 20 years to kind of be the mentor for that that team remotely 
By the way, we I think it works uh, without uh, requiring a lot of experience. Uh, in the team, we have different uh, levels of experience. And by the way, the team leader has a lot less experience as the rest of the team, but uh, it works very well. And um, I, I think uh, if you hire people who are interested in, in we have uh, interested in the project and have a good level, good technical level, and you give them uh, autonomy and responsibility. I think it works well. Uh, there is a, a self uh, a coordination and, and organization that every team will uh, find. And, um, but with uh, clever people, you, you generally. Uh, get a, a, a good working team so um i i'm not sure the age or experience uh, is a requirement for for a team to work uh, this way by the way i i don't think we i, I think it's really a, a very good setup for a team and i I would very. I don't want to work in another setting anymore. I'm personally loving remote work as well myself. Uh, and our team is globally distributed, just like like your entire company is, and it it works amazingly well for us because we trust one another. We communicate asynchronously or you know through non traditional means and get things done. One thing that I'm curious about hearing from you in particular. Before we started recording, you showed us a new product that, that you just released two days ago. And, you know, I kind of fanboyed a little bit on it. Like, wow, this is so fast and it's so well done. And the front end looks super nice. And it, it just is very well implemented. Um, when you get a new project like that, which I'm sure you've done things like this in the past based on your work history. But when you get something that's new or you have a new idea What's your process that you use for going from that ideation to a prototype? Yes, but we, we generally try, um, but we don't take a lot of time to, to try prototypes. We think uh, more globally than uh, just our team. We are sharing with uh, more uh, team members at Lean Face when we have... Uh, ideas of what new features we will uh, work on, in particular with the CTO, and see how it will have an impact on the product. And uh, when we have it, we are, when we decide on which feature we want to, to try, we, we look at which uh, stack we can uh, use uh, behind it. The idea is to use the simplest uh, technology possible, um, and it works well. Uh, for now, I don't know if it's uh, if it will always work. In particular, we are scaling and adding more and more data sets. But um, the idea we have taken is to uh, to make uh, every processing uh, the more unitary possible, atomic. So we can uh, scale and deploy on more and more workers when we need it, when we need them. So, uh, and one way we saw to, to be able to do this and is to rely on the simplest uh, technology is to, to have a, a files. So we, we use the datasets uh, library to, to convert every dataset to, uh, to the parquet format, which is uh, a very useful uh, format to, to do a lot of uh, uh, queries or um, statistics on dataset. And then uh, all the following processes are done on the parquet, uh, particularly using uh, DuckDB, which is, you can run uh, with one process that use a, uses a, a, a file 
and uh, returns a result and can run any uh, SQL uh, query on the, with the DB. And so it's basically the, the, the idea we have uh, for everything we are doing uh, on datasets tugging uh, face for the product to, to, to show things to people. And it works very well. So maybe we had luck, maybe uh, it was a good idea, I don't know, but uh, for now it's working well. And uh, we hadn't to do much uh, prototyping for that. We just uh, converted to Parquet, tried that uh, the queries were fast, that our server could serve the, the, the request uh, and the responses uh, quickly. And that's it. And on the front end side, uh, yes, we did some some uh, some prototypes. I use a lot the observable uh, platform. I don't know if you know it. It's, it's, it's a platform done by in particular by uh, Mike Bostock, who created D Free JS, and. Um, I have used it uh, a lot uh, when I was doing more data visualization as a freelancer, and uh, I'm keeping using it uh, to, to prototype uh, the, the front-end uh, data visualization. So, uh, but really, we are not doing a lot of uh, research uh, or prototyping. Or that we only try to to develop the feature and. When it's working more uh, more or less, we, we we ship it, and if it's not working well, we fix it. <laughs> there is a like a culture of shipping uh, the fastest uh, possible uh, and fixing when we need to fix it, not to overthink it, and not uh, uh, forecast uh, for any uh, possible scenario, but uh, more reacting. Uh, Fast when we see some issue. Got it. So sort of the, the move fast and break things approach. That's that's yes. really interesting. Um, and I've seen that employed at a variety of Databricks teams as well. Uh, but typically, <laughs> when you have very like multi million dollar ETL pipelines, you do need um, some guarantees on reliability. So it definitely depends upon the the type of technology that you're working on. Um, but I sort of have a, a more high level question, which is. Data visualization, in my opinion, is sort of a slept on topic and it's very pretty. It's good for LinkedIn posts and you're like, oh, look at my scatter plotter, or my heat map or whatever it might be. Um, but I was wondering how you as a legitimate expert in data visualization, how you think about good data visualization. What is good design? What is bad design? Are there any principles that you follow when you're looking to communicate a story with data? There are like two kinds of data visualization. One is explanatory, uh, exploratory, and the other is to explain things. So in the case of Hugging Face, we are wanting to give uh, users a, a way to understand their data and to, to change things, to filter, to, to search, and to, to have uh, insights on the data, but we cannot we don't want to take an edit editorial uh, role to say them uh, this is what you want to see and to know in your data. So it's more giving uh, exploratory uh, tools for the people. We are just starting to integrate uh, data visualization to the dataset viewer, but uh, it's the way we are working on. You know, Obviously, uh, if a lot of people are doing uh, data visualization in, for uh, newspapers, for example, and in this case, it's, it's the other way. You you are looking and analyzing the data, and when you have some insights, you are trying to do a very cute and uh, innovative uh, data visualization that will. Uh, help people understand one key uh, insight of what you could extract from the data. So you are using basically the same tools for from uh, to, to do that, but 
the the process is different and in our case at again face we are like uh, giving uh, the tools for people to 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 pay with the, the data and to, to extract what they want how, so question on that how do you know what dials and knobs to add in and how to also simultaneously keep the product simple because when we the, the feature that Ben was talking about that you guys built a couple of days ago it's basically a histogram plot on the top of each column and then some unique values or some road displays under that histogram very similar to what Kaggle does why I mean histograms are awesome I absolutely love them but how did you know that histograms were the right decision versus a scatter plot versus a box plot versus the 70 other plots that communicate very similar information and how did you not actually put in 50 different widgets? Like, how do you distill down to the essential product? Yes. First, we looked at what uh, websites are doing, Kaggle, Observable, Hypnot, etc., etc. And there is like a standard way of doing things and that seem correct. And it's, it's very important to do data visualizations that people will understand and, and that there are standards that everybody understands. And we don't want you to have to think, uh, oh, will I read this data? When you see the histogram uh, for a numerical uh, column, you know what it, what it means. You can cover the bars and you understand uh, what is written below as a the height is a number of uh, samples for that uh, for that class. So we and as it was the first uh, data visualization we integrated in the the dataset uh, page. We wanted it to be uh, the most simple possible, the, what people will expect, and uh, we will iterate a bit. For example. You can see currently we are not showing anything on, over the string columns. And why we have uh, a lot of NLP um, uh, data sets. And there are like two kinds of string. Uh, some are classes. So you have a lab label, for example, good, bad, I don't know. So, in this case, we could show uh, like the, the, the frequency of every class as we are currently doing uh, some. We have a specific uh, type of column, which is class level. And so uh, we show a, a specific widget for them. And uh, the majority of uh, string columns are prompts, uh, large, uh, large sentences. And so we have to think what we will show if we will show something. If we show something, it must be very simple to catch. You have to, to understand what this means. So we are thinking of uh, showing an histogram of the length of the strings and see if it works for people. If it doesn't work, we will change it. Uh, but um, we don't want to support any kind of uh, data and to show very uh, complex uh, widgets, we prefer to go one step uh, at a time and see if it works. If there is, if we have a lot of comments that it's not understandable, we will remove it. I don't. Yeah, there's something really to be said, in my opinion, with the simplistic approach and not overloading users. Uh, it reminds me of a, a ticket I responded to a couple of months ago where somebody was using MLflow and they had an issue where they were saying, well, my plots aren't rendering the way that I want uh, within the UI. Like, I'm initially thinking like, oh, that's our visualization. Like, we need, I need to verify that our plot, like the generated plots that we do and and the plot builder work. I go and test it. Like, oh, everything's working fine on my end. And then I look deeper into the ticket with what they're reporting and ask them. And it was charts that they were generating as artifacts to be stored to the runs. So it's just, you know, PNGs that they're saving off 
as part of logging. And I looked into the run that they shared and there's 1,500 pictures that are attached to each run. And I'm like, yeah, it's really slow. Yeah, you're, you're writing 1,500 files that are all at you know 4K resolution effectively. Uh, these are huge pictures that you're generating. Um, but I looked at a couple of the pictures that they shared and even being in this field for, you know, going on a decade and a half, uh, I'm trying to figure out what the plot was for. It was something that I had never seen before, but it was so busy. There were so many lines. So there's like a, a shadowed histogram in the background. And then there were plot points of individual data points with like overlaid on top of that, that were different shapes and color coded. And then it looked like there were probability distribution functions being mapped for like within each histogram, but vertical. So just on their side. And I'm like, I asked the first time, like, what are these plots for? And, and what do they, what do you get out of these plots? Uh, Cause it looks like this is six plots in one. And it took me, I, I set a timer on my, my phone when I first looked at it. I'm like, I'm just going to start a timer. I'll stop the timer when I can explain what this chart does in in less than four sentences. And it took me 73 seconds to get to that point of just working it through my head, being like, what is going on here? So what are your thoughts when you, when presented with somebody's, like maybe a feature request when you're talking about a data visualization or an idea that they have? Like, it would be great if I could for the text string, if I could get the length of each string, the average, the median, the token count as it would be seen mm -hmm. by a Transformers model, uh, what do you think of when people give you that sort of feature feedback with requests? Basically, we have a lot of ideas and a lot of experts who are producing this kind of uh, metrics and graphs and charts, for example, to, to assess uh, the quality of the data set, to see if uh, the data set is well balanced, if, uh, um, if there are biases inside the data set. So there are a lot of very advanced uh, measurements, but the issue is that uh, it's too hard to understand them. Uh, and the plugin face hub is, uh, de is designed for everybody. Uh, any uh, user that want to do machine learning has to understand what we are showing. So we have this uh, <clears throat> obligation, which is to, to be the GitHub of machine learning. So we want for every technologist to, to be a user of uh, a game face, and not only the developers, but we think uh, other uh, people can be working uh, with machine learning in the next years. So we have to do, um, to think of uh, the Again face hub as a, um, a website that everybody can use. And uh, for that, uh, for that reason, we need to, for, and for the data visualization we are showing on uh, the data set page, we have to make it the most common and uh, understandable possible. So we have a lot of fancy metrics or measurements that can find uh, if a data set is well balanced or if there are biases or if it's or if the text is uh, showing the same uh, word distributions as, uh, as, the, as the English language and these kind of things, they are very useful to, to have uh, some insights about uh, the quality of the data set. But we are struggling a lot uh, to think how to show this in a small space because you can see we are using like uh, 100 pixels uh, by uh, 30 pixels so we are we have to to show the something very clear there so 
every decision and we are not only taking the decision as a as a data set team but uh, also with uh, front end people and design people who are very strong uh, on uh, trying to keep things very simple so uh, we cannot uh, ship uh, complex things they, they will not pass these filters you know? uh, it's uh, something very important for us to to do something that every people uh, working with a good face can understand uh, very quick so it's um, but uh, we are also thinking how to introduce uh, new uh, metrics more focused on uh, or specific to machine learning that can help people because uh, if we only show histograms it's not we are not uh, uh, extracting uh, all the value we could from uh, from from the data and we are not giving all the insights we could uh, to help people uh, do the best uh, machine learning uh, uh, to learning uh, models or or, or uh, fine tuning uh, we have things we could uh, bring to people and we have to think how to to show them so it's I think it's our main uh, struggle uh, currently to 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 find uh, the the middle way how to to be useful and simple. And that's probably one of the most challenging things to deal with, particularly under sort of the pressure that your company's on now. And it, it's not a bad pressure that Hugging Face has now. Um, <laughs> and I'm interested in what your perception was or has been over the last one year at the company when, I mean, data, like serious data scientists in NLP world and people doing applied ML, they've known about Hugging Face for years and people have been using it, super successful. It's an awesome tool and, and ecosystem. The hub is awesome. And then what was it like and how does it influence your product decisions now when you realize that people are mentioning your company and the technology of your company in the evening news or in newspapers? Yes, it's a pressure you... That's, the status has changed a lot in the next year or two. And... Um, it's a lot of pressure as an engineer because you see the impact. You know that there are more and more users. The company is uh, what uh, again phase is doing is uh, as an impact. People are seeing uh, again face as a promoter of open source in the machine learning uh, landscape. And uh, also, we are pushing pushing a lot the, the ethics in the, the machine learning world. So we, we we have to to transfer this image or these uh, these principles into the product, which is why we want to to show insights that help. Uh, uh, detect uh, bad, dat bad data sets or data sets that could do harm. And we have an ethics team. We work very well and uh, has a lot of impact, I think, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the landscape uh, in general. And we have to, to take them uh, insights, to take the, their ideas and to uh, convert them uh, as product features and it's not easy. Uh, there is surely innovation we have to uh, to to produce and to to convert into product features, and it's very exciting to to do something new and uh, to try to be uh, geared by uh, by some high level principles. We we want to change all the. How machine learning is working 
trying to to help people do good machine learning. So a couple of episodes ago, maybe it was last week, we were talking about advances in LLM design and maybe you know, next generation after Transformers, which I'm sure Hugging Face will be the one hosting that globally for whatever the next research iteration is. That advancement's going to keep on happening and it's a good thing. What I'm really interested in is a discussion point that we came to during that podcast about ethical use of highly capable language models that can distill complex information and answer questions. With you working on the data set team, you're in a, a unique position of being able to look at any open source data set that's submitted. I mean, probably for the private repos as well, but for the ones that are given out there for open source, do you ever have any concerns or fears associated with somebody releasing something onto the platform? that you could take a highly capable pre-trained model and train it for nefarious reasons. Hey, the data set contains the step-by-step instructions for building the first three generations of nuclear weapons back in the 1940s and 50s. And then somebody can ask the LLM, can you give me a walkthrough on how to create the primary detonator for, you know, a a fission bomb? of course, not that exact example. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty complex. But that idea of somebody putting something out there that anybody who doesn't it doesn't require the the amount of technical acumen in order to do it themselves. But the hugging face APIs are are intentionally simple, and for good reason. Like they're they hide a ton of complexity behind them, so anybody really can go through a couple tutorials and, and kind of get started. Is there a concern on your perspective for stuff like that? I think it's one of the reasons why uh, Again Face has integrated uh, new social features to the hub. It means in particular the discussions uh, tab where people, any users can discuss, uh, debate, and uh, also trigger issues when uh, they see things that shouldn't be published. And we have some requests, uh, to, re- requests to, 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 to unpublish uh, some uh, data sets or models. Uh, we have obviously uh, our terms, uh, that, uh, our politics that, has, uh, that have to, to be uh, respected. And... Uh, but we try to keep it open and discussed with the community. And uh, it works very well uh, as far as I can see. But uh, for what I've seen, we, we really are very far from the kind of example you are mentioning. And we, we, don't, and we also have a, a specific um, tag, which is a not for all eyes uh, or for not for all audiences, uh, which can be put on data sets or models that uh, can that you could also uh, call uh, not safe for work, uh, and it helps a lot too because everybody has uh, the right to 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 train uh, models for the sector. So we we allow people to to do what they are to do for their uh, work but uh, also to protect uh, if people want to to be safer when they uh, browse uh, the hub uh, they can uh, just uh, respect the not for all audiences uh, tag and they will not see them and um, but uh, clearly, uh, by doing everything transparent uh, and with the community, uh, it, help, uh, it helps a lot uh, detecting, discussing, and also defining uh, what is uh, acceptable and what is not. So a lot of things are, a lot of topics are still not clear in the, the ML domain. 
uh, everybody is experimenting what is this uh, possible we uh, should we do this uh, and we try to be uh, one of the uh, spaces where we can uh, debate this thing and, and help uh, defining uh, the good practices and the limits of uh, what is doable or not it's interesting crowdsourcing stuff like that because you don't have to retain expertise about all these different domains internally in your company. If you're trying to police something like that, you're, you're limited by human resources, basically. Like how many people can go through all of these data sets and see what's in here? Because yeah, there's a lot of activity on Hugging Face Hub in particular. It's amazing to me how many people are like retraining and pushing stuff out there. It's like auditing that is would be monumental to go through to have like a non-automated way of doing that. When you see some of the new stuff that's coming out, that people are either very recently releasing or there's an announcement that, hey, this company is about to release the something that's on par with ChatGPT 3.5 you know, abilities and they're going to give it away for free. Uh, or, you know, some, some companies are working on stuff that they're going to fully open source. That's intended to directly compete with GPT four with like mixture of experts and stuff. And they're going to put it on the hub. How do you see something like that disrupting industries in general that are now building up around what you guys have been doing for years in a very intelligent way of like, Hey, we're going to create the marketplace and, give you places to, to manage all this but now we have all these llm startups that are like oh we're going to build this new model that's going to compete directly with them and then we'll charge for access to it how do you see that defining the tech landscape because of the fact that the hugging face exists and this open source ability to use whatever's out there sure we are betting uh, for open source uh, from the start and philosophically you we think that the same, uh, we think that uh, free software and open source software as one, and we think uh, the same will occur with uh, machine learning. It's a bet. We don't really know. It's not a philosophical question. It's more like uh, what will all the world will work and which uh, all the different companies will uh, uh, fight uh, to to defend their interests. So we will see, but we are betting on. Uh, we think open source uh, machine learning is more efficient, uh, uh, provides uh, more innovation, and uh, at the end uh, benefits uh, more people and more companies. So we hope uh, it will work that way. Some companies are going only for closed source uh, machine learning. Some are doing a bit of uh, both, like uh, Microsoft. But uh, it's it's uh, it's not defined now. Obviously, again, uh, uh, face uh, is the place where people are releasing uh, mostly the uh, open source models and data sets. So. Uh, we are pushing and helping them uh, as far as, I, as we can, uh, trying to to make people uh, or companies uh, release their models, release their data sets, uh, also advocating because there is a lot of fear. Uh, uh, companies uh, who think that, that thing they, they, they will lose control when control to me is more how fast you can uh, and how much expertise you you can uh, bring uh, to to your clients. So mm. it's a risk you have to take. Some companies cannot take it and don't want to take it. But uh, for innovation, uh, open source is really a, a, an engine that works very well. Yeah, and we've been sort of hinting at throughout the, these topics the a really interesting economic and sort of business principle, which is the, the value of providing and creating infrastructure. If you think about the 
ascent of LLMs to sort of the forefront of the entire industry. There's a bunch of winners. There's the people that use the LLMs for chatbots and can automate their tech support or whatever it is. But as you sort of descend down into the ranks, well, these models have to be trained. NVIDIA's stock price, just look at it over the past year. That That's an amazing example of the value of sort of being in an infrastructure company. And we see that at Databricks as well. And Hugging Face as a sort of a hub and as a provider to allow people to interact with models, serve them, create them, that type of thing. Um, it's a very valuable and sort of stable position. And so Hugging Face is, is very well respected and well known. But Savannah, I was wondering if you had some insight into where the company is going. And also Ben, I'm sure you do as well. Um, like where where is Hugging Face looking to go over the next several years? And also from sort of a data visualization perspective, what excites you about what Hugging Face is working on? For the company as a whole, I I don't think I can answer. And if I answer, I'm not sure it will be right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we really know uh, what we... We are still a startup, so we are taking things... Uh, trying what is working, what is not working on the business model side. So basically what we are proposing uh, currently is enterprise uh, use of the, of the app to have some additional features that enterprise or companies are interested in and uh, providing uh, inference at a production uh, quality level and uh, learning uh, models also with our auto-train uh, uh, proposal but offer. But um, I don't know if it will be the future. I, I don't know if uh, we will uh, pivot at some time uh, to something else. I don't know. But um, surely something we, we will find. So, uh, I'm not uh, at all uh, scared. Uh, I think we have a very position uh, which is very good uh, in, in the landscape because clearly the community is uh, has a good image of uh, living face and we try to to not uh, uh, betray them so uh, i think we if we keep with this uh, with these principles uh, we we can uh, still uh, uh, we can uh, still work well as a company. But uh, for the data visualization side, which is a lot uh, less important than the first point, um, I think we will uh, keep uh, trying to do very small things in the simplest possible and try to innovate on the small uh, Spaces we will be allowed to show on the on the app. We, I don't think we we are not a data visualization or data analysis company. We want people to be able to integrate the Hugging Face app more and more in their daily work. So we are listening to all people are working, what they ask, what they have to do. A lot of people are doing data notation, for example, but we are not doing this for, for now. And I don't know if we will do it, but uh, um, we are still uh, seeing how we will uh, uh, help people more uh, working with their data sets to, to improve them, clean them. Uh, and so if data visualization is useful to do this, we will use it. Uh, if not, it's better not to to to, to put too much uh, garbage on the page. So really, <laughs> we are thinking every pixel we are uh, showing on the hub and trying to to reduce it, to hide it, to 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 remove it if possible. So <laughs> it's very hard to to put a, a chart on the website. But, uh, we try to to make it as simple as possible. Yeah, your your dedication to simplicity is, is impressive. <laughs> the fact that it's come up like at least twelve times during this podcast. Impressive. I mean, it shows in the product too because it's just so clean and so well designed. 
you get what you need. Like anytime that I'm, I have to write a lot of integration tests with transformers and data sets and integration with the hub. And if I ever get a, a question or something, I'm like, ah, why am I getting this weird behavior with this model that some, you know, big tech company put onto the hub that I need to use because it's a, a tiny model that I need for an integration test. I can, I know exactly where to go. I just go to the hub. I go to the model card. I read the model card real quick. The information's there that I need. I don't have to go and search in 17 different places or look in their source code that maybe they updated or I'm not searching through GitHub to figure out like how all this stuff was made and why that exception's being thrown. The information's there. And then if I want to see, like, what do they do with their tokenizer? Well, I can go look at that as well. And I can, it's just navigating the hub is a delight. And I wish that more open source focused companies built stuff like that because, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody else does what Hugging Face does though. But you guys are Switzerland, right? You are not taking sides in the inevitable war that's coming, right? Like this is an arms race with these, with these models, the big ones. I think it's going to accelerate over the next five years and everybody's pushing everything to Hugging Face. You have Meta, Microsoft, uh, Mosaic, Databricks. Uh, you know, all of these, Google, all these massive tech companies that can throw a bunch of scientists at this, these problems and say, yeah, we saw what somebody released six months ago. Here's something we're working on internally that we think the world could benefit from. Where are we going to host it? Could Google host that model? Of course they can. They can host whatever they want. Can Microsoft host it? Yeah. But they're not doing that. They're mm -hmm. pushing that model artifact to Hugging Face because it's Switzerland. It's the mm -hmm. safe place that everybody can collaborate, which, in my opinion, it's beautiful. I, I love mm -hmm. your product, your company, what you guys have done. I think it's great. By the way, as um, the last um, uh, the Series D, which uh, has been uh, announced uh, one month ago, was done uh, with uh, everybody in the ecosystem formerly. Uh, so Google, uh, NVIDIA, uh, AMD, uh, Salesforce, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so, and I think it's because uh, all these actors uh, see uh, again face as a neutral place, uh, which is useful for everybody and which is not really competing with any of them so uh, and it's it's very interesting for us to to be considered uh, as a neutral place because uh, it means that everybody is needing a new phase in, in some way too and we are useful for them so it's a good validation of what we have been doing i've got one final personal question for you just out of curiosity, have you thought about the fact that your grandchildren are going to read about what you're doing at this point in your career? Like previous tech companies, maybe they, it won't even be mentioned in, in the history books. Like it's not like a significant contribution. Like most of the places that we've worked in the past, they could be big companies, but we might not have been part of something so critical to that. But do you, do you think about that every once in a while? Like, hey, the code that I'm writing today and the project that I'm working on, this is doing something that's changing the face of of our species on this on this planet. I mean, think about the technological leap that all of this stuff has enabled and how it's a paradigm shift globally. When you I start having, you know, extended family members that are not in tech be like, Oh, did you try that GPT thing, the chat thing? When it's that well known it it enters the social consciousness and that means it's actually changing things um do you ever think about that though that, like you're, you're doing something that's like <laughs> gonna be written about in history books it's uh, interesting because uh as i mentioned uh, before recording i i haven't done machine learning for a long time 
and it's worse than that. I I'm not particularly interested in machine learning as such. <laughs> it means that I I love what I'm doing, but the global field of machine learning, I think it and artificial intelligence, I think it will change a lot. It will have the same impact as uh, computer science has had, or the internet has had. Uh, it's really a, a paradigm change, but uh, I don't think it will be the only, the only one. I think it will be important, but I'm. I, it's, it's weird. I, I don't feel like an actor of it. I'm, I'm doing more like the side uh, features uh, on the data sets and I love it, but I, I'm, I don't know if I'm afraid or I don't know. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't want to, to take too much part of uh, AI. <laughs> I don't know if it, if, it, if it makes sense. It does make sense. And it's the same answer I get from everybody working at, at massive tech companies that are doing cool stuff. It's just this sense of humility, particularly in software engineering, where you're just like, I'm just working on this little part. Like, <laughs> no, you're building something that's required for that product to work. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you. I think you realize the scope of what's involved in all the all of your peers who are, you know, fantastic and amazing and geniuses, and they're all also humble. So you're like, uh, I don't want to, you know, claim credit for anything. It's it's a team effort, which is nice. What I think I wanted to say is that it's such a big change that uh, every uh, individual uh, contribution is also somewhat insignificant. Uh, I mean, it's sure. part of something so big that, uh, for example, it's a shame, but uh, I was hired at a game face without knowing uh, what the game face was. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> they contacted me uh, to do data visualization, and I was like, oh, very interesting. It uh, looks like a nice company. And then I saw the impact uh, the company has. So I was like, I feel a bit uh, like an imposter because I, I'm not uh, part of the again face fans that uh, right. that's, uh, want to, to bring to that topic and to, to machine learning. If I really loved that field, I would have known uh, again face before. So it's like uh, for that reason, I feel a bit uh, like um, uh, on the side of it. But uh, it's so fascinating. I I learn every day. I, it's in being part of a company uh, like a game face. It's also very intimidating to see so much uh, news every day. What uh, AI is capable of. And also, it's a reason for which I I prefer to to, to just look uh, from far because uh, you cannot uh, keep up with the, the rhythm of uh, the news, or you right. only do this. So you have to to let uh, things go and, and come and and just take uh, some bits uh, when you can, but you cannot keep up with the rhythm of this. <laughs> it's a, clearly it's a revolution and. It's hard to to keep informed and to understand everything uh, at that time. So we will see. I'm impatient to see what will come next year's. It'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah, just to quickly point something out. Just because you're one of the ants in the giant colony doesn't mean that you're insignificant. Like maybe you might not be the CEO ant, but still. Worker ants are essential, and um, your contributions are felt. So, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, the CEO isn't writing code. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, code some CEOs do. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We won't get into whether you write code or not. Which which human is better? But um, that's a different episode. All right. So I will quickly wrap. Um, today we talked about a bunch of really cool things. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to highlight were 
regarding culture specifically for remote teams, you got to be able to work asynchronously. Um, the Hugging Face team that Sylvan works for does an hour meeting every two weeks, and that seems to be sufficient. So if you have very good asynchronous communication and you know what you're doing generally, really infrequent meetings could work for your team. Um, and also they, they really focus on working what they enjoy doing, uh, like working on projects that they find stimulating and challenging. Um, and then they also, just, just based on how he's been talking, you can tell they really ship fast, iterate, move fast and break things. That paradigm is, is very apparent in this team. Uh, their tech stack, they use a lot of Parquet, DuckDB, JavaScript, Python, and Git. And uh, they try to leverage as much open source as possible. If it's already out there, why would you build it again? And then from a data visualization perspective, there are sort of two core camps. The first is exploratory. The second is explanatory. Exploratory, you don't really know what you're trying to communicate. Explanatory, you have a vision or a thesis that you're trying to defend. And in both cases, it's important to keep things simple and look around you, look at the competition, see what other people are doing. Because again, if it already exists, don't recreate it. So, Sylvain, if people want to learn more about you, your work at Hugging Face, or your personal stuff, where should they go? Um, basically, uh, I'm posting on LinkedIn. I'm also switching from X to Mastodon. If uh, people want to follow me, I, I prefer to, to post on Mastodon. And um, but also, uh, uh, we try to push also, uh, social features on Hugging Face, so my profile on Geeks. Well, this has been a lot of fun. And until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. We'll see you next time.